Welcome to Radical Feminist Perspectives. Today we're going to hear about Spinning and Weaving by Elizabeth Miller and it's discussed by Marion Rutiliano and Elizabeth Miller. So thank you so much both of you and over to you. So Spinning and Weaving. Spinning and Weaving is a it's a big book. Um, it's got a it's got a lot in it. It came out a couple of years ago and I think I believe I've read everything in it by now but it 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 took a while. It's a it's like a book club reading project. Um, and the author is um, Elizabeth Miller. Hi, Liz. Um, why did you want to write, edit, publish this book, this big book of essays? Well, um, I wanted to provide a platform and a forum for gathering the voices of radical feminist women um, whom I knew of and had been speaking to for years, either in person or online um, or reading their works um, or all three of those things, because I was engaged in these conversations where women were saying such brilliant things and they were making new feminist theory and they were saying things that just needed to be heard by you know, as as wide a variety of women as possible. And the discourse that was online would disappear after it was said. So there would be people would be saying things in comments on Facebook that were like radical feminist essays. <laughs> and I would think, my gosh, that's brilliant. And it's going to be gone. You know, it's going to scroll away by tomorrow. Um, and I thought, you know, in the old days, we had these things called books um, on paper that were printed and I just thought it would be great to gather as much of contemporary and current radical feminist thought in a more permanent place. And there, at the time that I thought of doing the book, there really weren't that many radical feminist books coming out. And the ones that were coming out were focused mostly on like one topic. Um, and so I wanted to put one out that covered many um, and so that was sort of my my main inspiration. Yeah, that was, I mean, you know, in the early days of, um, you know, women's liberation, the early days of uh, feminism, um, people published like it would be in pamphlets. You know, a lot of those a lot of those essays would have just come out in, in pamphlets that were circulated. Um, what does the title mean? I mean, spinning and weaving. Some of us know, but some of us may not know. Yeah, I was. So I got both of those words, those concepts from Mary Daly, uh, the great second wave radical feminist. And um, there are a couple of quotes. I'm not sure if they're up on the screen right now. Um, that So I have a slide with a couple of her quotes. She has quotes about spinning and about weaving. Um, and she uses a lot of metaphors about women creating and creating creating our way, spinning our way out of patriarchy, creating our own reality, creating a feminist reality. And I was really inspired by those images. Um, and so I'd like to just quickly read a couple of those quotes. Um, one of them is a woman whose occupation is to spin participates in the whirling movement of creation. She who has chosen herself, who defines herself by choice neither in relation to children nor to men, who is self-identified, is a spinster, a whirling dervish, spinning in a new time and space. In this space, she can begin to weave the tapestries of her own creation. 
as she and her sister spin together, we create the network of our own space. And then there's one about weaving. Gain ecology is weaving the way past the dead past and the dry places, weaving our world tapestry out of genesis and demise. And I really loved those images. They were very meaningful to me. Um, the idea that women can spin and weave our own world. Um, that's a positive world, that's a woman-centered world, that's a world outside of patriarchy time space. Yeah, Mary Daly is a good place to start. Um, and these, I mean, these quotes really um, take on more meaning when you read the book. Um, and finally, to just kind of set the set the stage for how you wrote the book. I mean, how did you pull this together? I mean, I mean, there's some material that must have already been written. Um, you probably saw new pieces from people. You edited things. How did it? How did it? How did you pull it together? So I thought of the whole book as kind of a cooperative venture, um, and I wanted it to be very organic and grassroots and from the ground up, rather than you know, from the top down, like me saying, this is what should be discussed. And here I will assign these people to discuss pieces of it. I didn't want it to be like that. So again, I saw the book as kind of a forum, like the Roman forum or, um, you know, a platform for women to speak on. Um, and so what I did basically was the first thing I did was I made a big spreadsheet of every radical feminist I could think of who I had heard of and you know, could be in touch with. Um, and I just started, I spent quite a lot of time just finding um, emails to contact people. And I guess I want to pause here for a second to say that method was necessarily somewhat limiting because I couldn't really reach out to women in many countries who didn't speak English because I just didn't know they existed. Um, and that's something, I mean, well, the, the WDI um, series is amazing for that because you're doing a lot of work to bring together women from many countries. But um, as one person, I was more limited in that. So that's one way that I would love would have loved for the book to be even better would be if I could have reached out to, you know, women, more women in Africa and Asia and, um, you know, just countries where they didn't speak English. But um, I did I did get some authors who whose first language wasn't English, so that was good. But but basically what I did was I made a spreadsheet of everyone I had come across, and then I contacted them. I contacted about a hundred women and I just asked them if they I, I explained the book project to them and I asked them if they would write something. I really didn't tell them what they should write about. Um if they if they asked me, I would sort of throw out some very general topics like pornography and prostitution is one topic, you know, I would sort of list topics by one or two words, but I didn't give them any more guidance than that because I wanted it to come from them. Um, and so I asked them to write about what was important to them. And then the shape of the book, the outline and table of contents was shaped by what I received. Um, although I did work with a number of women along the way to sort of help them shape their voices and and focus on what they wanted to focus on and express it well. Um, but that was sort of the process. All right. That was um, a really good uh, summary of like if, if anyone else wants to write a book like this or edit a book like this, that was how it was yeah. done. Um, getting into the book itself, I mean, can you just can you um, 
it's a big book. It's got a lot of essays. Can you just dip in anywhere and read? Or are there one or two essays that are helpful to read first? Well, I think you can dip in anywhere and read. Um, but um, I think that it's actually helpful to look at the table of contents and see get a, an overview of everything that's there and to see what topics are covered. And then you might choose to read all of the topics in one section of the book. It's divided into sections that are under sort of broad topics. Um, I also have an introductory essay that I think gives a helpful overview of radical feminist topics. Also, the first chapter in the book, um, Renee Gerlich's essay, I think is also a good introduction. Um, but sort of once you've given yourself a little bit of an overview, I think you you could read anywhere. Um, or you could read from the beginning to the end. I actually know of a book club here in the U.S. where they just finished reading the book they read from page one to the end, and I think it took about a year. Wow. Um, excuse me. The first um, the first part is foundational rad radical feminist theory for the 21st century, and the first essay you were talking about was um, on 21st century patriarchy and the place of women's hearts in the women's movement by Renee Gerlich. Um, you know, why, why was that essay first? Um, and, and is there, should we change the slides? I don't, I'm not sure, Liz. Did we, I believe they're being controlled by Joe. Yeah. Um, next slide, Joe. I'm not sure when, uh, uh keep uh, next slide. Next slide. Let's see. Where. And maybe uh, the next one. Next slide. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Well, actually, I don't think I have a slide specifically about okay. uh, Renee's book. Okay. But, All um, right. But Renee Gerlich's essay. Um, really, yes. I mean, it was great. Yes. Yes, she worked very hard on it. She she struggled with it somewhat because um, it was such a sort of huge piece of work that I think she. Um, struggled a bit over what she wanted to say and exactly how and um you know it was i think it's a very innovative piece and i think what what she ended up with was was wonderful and i think it's it's first because i think it raises kind of foundational and global questions about women's experience in the world um, and how radical feminism provides a lens to analyze that and it also raises themes that come up um, throughout the book. Um, and so she, it's divided into some sections on kind of themes that she calls um, attachment, shame, anger, aloneness, negotiation, and love. And I think that those themes kind of in a way reflect her journey into radical feminism and some of the stumbling blocks that she found working in radical feminist activism and kind of the conclusions that she came from, came to, sorry. So that's why I put it first. I thought it was really a good jumping off point to sort of understand the rest of the book. And then you followed it right up with um, with uh, Janice Raymond, Radical Feminist mm -hmm. Activism for the 21st Century. Mm -hmm. um, and, and um, her, uh, her, she talks about lesbian feminism as well. Um, that was, I mean, I, I really liked having those two essays first because they were just sort of a, a summation and a, like a, you know, 
a, a look through a long lens. Um, and yes, and I then after that, you got into probably one of the reasons we're in the fix we're in. Feminism allowed you to speak, um, which discusses like postmodern postmodernism and queer theory. Um, why was it so important to discuss that up front so early in the book? Ah, yes. Um, so this could easily be a, an entire, just you know, hour long discussion or a whole course um, in understanding the sort of clash between this idea of queer theory versus feminist theory. Um, so there's, and I'm not going to be able to do it justice in a couple of minutes, but there's a sort of formalistic philosophical theory, um, postmodernism and queer theory is related to that, that kind of teaches us to replace feminist analysis with the centering of deconstructing everything sort of deconstructing the meaning out of everything. Um, and it's directly in, in, in conflict with feminist analysis because feminist analysis, I think correctly teaches us that everything is based on, that women's oppression comes out of the material world, that men recognize that we have a certain biology and they want to exploit it and that's where they create all our problems from is the materiality of, of the world and biology and queer theory basically says that doesn't exist. Um, and it's, so it robs materiality of meaning um, and it erases material oppression as a problem to be solved. And it's instead it says really the only problem is that we should be able to deconstruct everything. Um, and that we should be able to queer everything, which means basically erasing the meaning from everything. And the reason they want to do that is because they want to break down all boundaries. And so I think it's immediately obvious that breaking down all boundaries is sort of in exact conflict with all feminist aims. I mean, feminism is basically about women being allowed to have boundaries um, and being able to... Um, sort of run our own lives and create our own world that's safe for us and a world where we can um, have autonomy. And queer theory is in direct conflict with that. And so it's um, when it's replacing, when, when that's becoming like the dominant discourse, queer theory, it really pushes the ability to do feminist analysis out of the picture. So that's yeah. a very, very, very short, it didn't sound short, but it's a very short sort of summation, I guess. Well, you make you make the point of set, of setting boundaries um, that, and you're right, I mean, there's, queer theories is about breaking down all the boundaries. And so oddly enough, I mean, you go on to talk about, or the, the you, you know, the essays in the book want to talk about fem female separatism, which was very much discussed in the early second wave, radical feminism, um, was even practiced a bit. Um, and is can be controversial. Is it still relevant, and is 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 it still possible? Female separatism. I think it's very much still relevant and still possible. Um, I think that the word separatism sets people off um, because they immediately think, "Oh, separatists, man haters." They they're telling us that all women must live in a female commune out in the country and you know, never emerge from that female commune. And that, it, that has been one historical 
meaning of separatism, but it's only one of many meanings. Um, and I think that, I actually think it's extremely important for women, for feminists and all women, honestly, to have a separatist mindset because we are mired in patriarchy. We are swimming in, in the patriarchal structure. And I think the only way for women to actually make progress, become autonomous, take over our own lives and, and be in our own power is to have a separatist mindset. And by that, I mean being women-centered, um, not seeing ourselves through the male lens, not seeing ourselves as objects, which is the way patriarchy sees us, but seeing ourselves as subjects and making ourselves and other women the subject of our own lives. Um, and that can look a range of ways for different women from complete separatism to uh, just centering your life and maybe your job around uh, around women, around making the world better for women and girls. So it can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different women's lives. But I think that it's very important for women and especially active feminists to have the separatist mindset that I'm talking about. Like a take your eyes off the guys, you know, that famous exactly. quote from Sonia Johnson. Johnson. Yeah. I, I was, I've been very impacted by that that work of Sonia Johnson, taking our eyes off the guys. Absolutely. That's a huge part of separatism. Um, Joe, can you um, uh, advance the slides? I'm not sure where we are on the slides. Want to uh, place the next slide? We'll catch, we'll catch up. Yeah. Uh, so there's a slide about, um, I don't know if you want to focus on these, Marion, but there's a slide on what sure. did I learn from the pieces in the book? And there's one on themes I see threaded throughout the book. But then there are also some slides that just have individual quotes. Okay, um, this is actually a, a really interesting quote, and I'm and I'm glad you put it in there. Um, ecocide, biocide, femicide, um, and this is something that a lot of feminists point out. Um, Lear Keith is a is a notable woman who a uh, notable feminist who points this out. Um, this this part of the book is there anything else in this part that you want to specifically point out? I know you've talked about uh, interge intergenerational feminist solidarity. Um, what's Why is that so important? Yes, intergenerational uh, feminist solidarity is extremely important. And there's a fantastic chapter about that in part one of the book um, called, it's chapter five, Feminism Allowed You to Speak, Reinforcing Intergenerational Feminist Solidarity Against Sophisticated Attacks. Um, this is by a young feminist who talks about her experience of um, sort of being separated from feminists in other generations. And I think that this is a very common problem and it's a deliberate move on the part of patriarchy is to set women against each other based on various categories so that we see each other as the enemy rather than seeing the patriarchal structure as the enemy. And one of the very, very common ways that's been used all throughout history is to set women of other generations against each other. And um, this is a very clever move on their part because it means that every generation is by itself um, and doesn't get any of the wisdom. So the younger ones don't get any of the wisdom of older generations and they often feel like they're trying to invent feminism for themselves and they lose everything that's been learned and all the skills that have been learned up to that point. 
Um, and in the other direction too, older feminists don't get the perspectives of younger feminists. We don't um, get to know about their life experiences. Um, so, so for instance, younger feminists have so much, or uh, younger women in general have so much experience of um, being exposed to pornography in their daily lives from the time they were children and how that shaped their sexuality and their views of themselves. Um, and that's something that women who came of age before, say, I guess the 1990s, don't have that experience. And so we need to be able to understand the what, what younger women have gone through. And so it's incredibly important to be able to forge these intergenerational bonds. Um, and so that piece and some others are, I think, very, very important in thinking about that and taking wisdom away from that. Yeah, and then there's a couple of chapters later is this um, um, is this chapter on on ecocide. Um, you know, the, it it may seem like we're skipping around, but the book is a collection, and um, and in the chat, um, a couple of women were saying that they that they read it over the course of two years with a discussion. Um, and that is like one of the one of the great things about it is that, um, yeah, we went from one topic to another, but a discussion of each of these, you know, weekly or semi-weekly, you know, whenever you can do it, um, gets you into, um, uh, you know, all the all the literature and all the really important issues in in radical feminism. Um, next slide, please, uh, Joe. Part two is. Um, uh, intersectional feminism. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Mary, could I just um, add something to what you just said? Yes, absolutely. I would, what you said made me think of the following, which is that I would love to see women do a course where they go through the whole book, because I think when you go through the whole book, each, I mean, each chapter can stand on its own as a piece um, that's very important, but as I read through everything in the book, I also constantly kept being brought back to underlying themes that were threaded throughout all these pieces. Um, even though none of these women talked to each other when they were writing their individual pieces. And so I think it would be great to have a course that maybe one week, you know, looks at one chapter, but then at the end of that session, or maybe even in the following session, steps back and says, okay, how does this chapter interrelate with some of the themes that we're seeing throughout the book? I think that would be incredibly, um, you know, it would be very um, mind opening, I guess. Um, and so, because, because I think that you see the same things coming up over and over again, in sort of analogous ways, regardless of what specific topic you're focusing on. Yeah, I mean, it's not exactly consciousness raising, but on the other hand, it kind of kind of is. Only yeah. it's each individual essay telling you its its experience. Um, there's so much in this book. I mean, the next part is on intersectional feminism. Um, women aren't men. Radical feminist analysis of gender politics. Um, and I know you have. Um, uh, you know, and I think we all have um, uh, opinions or misgivings about the focus um, uh, now on on gender politics and trans. Um, was the, you know, was that um, uh, something that you uh, 
you know, reluctantly figured it's got to be in the book because we're talking about it so much. Um, and how did you, um, how did you, you know, tie it in with everything else? And um, when you say intersectionality was hijacked, I mean, what does that mean? So that was intersectionality hijacked was uh, Raquel Rosario Sanchez's um, title. And that was her kind of theme for chapter 12. And um, it's echoed by things that other women, particularly women of color said in the book, but I very much agree with it too, is that, so intersectionality is another word that I think has been given a bad name um, on purpose <laughs> by certain people. Um, but the original theory, the original theory of intersectionality um, was posited by a law professor, uh, a black law, American law professor, named Kimberly Crenshaw. And I think it's an incredibly brilliant insight, which is that various people and particularly women in her original work are oppressed along various axes of oppression, um, such as race and sex and class. But in addition, those don't exist in separate buckets. They intersect to create um, an oppression of a different quality for the people who are oppressed along those multiple axes. Um, and so I think that's a brilliant insight and absolutely true and something that Black feminist scholars have been talking about for decades. Um, but the hijacking of it um, has happened recently by the trans movement, where um, sort of similar to what queer theory does, where it erases feminist analysis and replaces it with this idea of deconstructing the meaning out of everything. Um, intersectionality has been twisted by the trans movement to mean, um, I mean, it doesn't really mean anything. It's, it's sort of hard to describe because it's absurd, but basically it means intersecting with men. Like men are, are among the category of women. And so intersectionality means that when we're doing feminist work, um, we recognize the oppression of women, but the oppression of women includes men who identify as women. <laughs> and so um, that's how it's been hijacked. Uh, to, to an incredible slide of incredible sleight of hand making Absolutely. that happen. Yeah, um, yeah, it's absurd. Yeah. Uh, but, it's, um, but it's really twisted what is a very valuable theory um, and and like many things that the patriarchy does, it distracts us from talking about what's important, like the original theory of intersectionality. Thank you. Um, you can go um, back to that other, uh, that next slide we were on before, um, Joe, because um, part three is on uh, pornography and prostitution as oppression of women. And again, there are a lot of, you know, it, it seems like we're talking about one thing, then we're talking about another. Um, but even as you're listening, um, when Liz talked about it's all connected, it's all connected, um, just sort of think about that. I mean, how is it connected? How is it connected? And again, that's the beauty of uh, of um, a discussion group over, over time is that you can discuss that. Um, so pornography and prostitution as oppression of women, um, harm and and it's denial, sex buyers, pimps, um, politics of prostitution, particular attention to German legal prostitution. Um, this was a this was a great essay. Did um, did Melissa Farley, um, who who does phenomenal work on this, did she just and Inga Klein did did they just have this lying around, or was this written specifically for the book? 
I, as much as I, I believe it was written specifically for the book. Yes. Um, and it certainly brought together work that they had been doing. Um, they do a lot of great work in this area. Um, but it's, it was, I believe written specifically for the book. Um, and it's, it's really absolutely a brilliant piece. Um, I think it does a wonderful job of gathering the research and statistics about the harms that prostitution does to women, and particularly about um, showing and really demonstrating in a material way how legalizing prostitution intensifies the violence and human rights abuses of prostitution rather than solving them. So people who are who want prostitution to be legalized will often say this will make prostitution so good for women. It will take away all the violence. And in fact, um, unfortunately, we have copious evidence from Germany um, especially, but I mean, other countries as well, but especially from Germany, that it does exactly the opposite. Um, legalizing prostitution in Germany has made Germany an absolute hellhole um, for prostituted women there and has made it so that many more men access prostitution. It's much more violent. It's much more exploitative because the state has basically made itself the pimp which means that um, prostitution is is justified and the men feel that they have no, um, you know, there are no boundaries around them. There's nothing stopping them from doing any of it. Um, and it also actually e even economically makes it much worse for women because uh, it becomes a buyer's market. Um, and so even, even economically, I mean, even if you were gonna say women should ever have to be in prostitution, which of course I don't think, uh, but even economically, it's much worse for women. Yeah, and and um, there's a an association, not just an association, but really a cause and effect of increased in sex trafficking, um, even you know international sex trafficking. Um, someone in the chat is talking about being skeptical of the Nor Nordic model. Um, yeah, it does institutionalize thing. Um, some women who are in in prostitution will say at least it changes the power um, power balance a little bit. Um, but I, I just, this was a great essay. I found it very informative Absolutely and very, brilliant. very compassionate. Um, um, uh, Marianne, I'm just going to pause for one second to close my window because it's getting very cold. So just give me one second. Okay. Um, while Liz is closing her window again, um, this is a book. It's a big book. Um, and it is absolutely worth, um, spending time just, just reading it, you can, you know, start with the first couple of essays, like Liz talked about at the beginning, um, and and then just, you know, do one one part at a time. Um, there's an essay, Andrea Dworkin, Teller of Hard Truths, and just to personally interject, um, it, this essay was really an effective way of recognizing the thoughtful and really brilliant work of of Andrea Dworkin. And when I saw the book, I wondered if there was going to be anything by Andrea Dworkin, and how you would choose you know, which of her essays or how you would cover Andrea Dworkin? Was was she somebody that you really thought, I want her stuff in the book or I want something in the book? And how did you go about that? Well, I I very much admire Andrea Dworkin. Um, I would, if she had been alive, I would absolutely have tried to approach her and asked her to contribute to the book. Um, I did not include anything. I only included pieces by women who were alive. So I did not seek reprint permission um, for any pieces by women who had passed away. Um, but I do think this is a brilliant piece. Um, this is this is one that was originally published somewhere else. 
Um, and Janice Raymond and Patricia Hines gave me permission to reprint it here. And I, I think it's um, a great reflection on um, the importance of her work, but I would definitely um, suggest that women seek out Andrea Dworkin's work. It's actually, most of it, or maybe all of it, is, is actually available online uh, in a library. You can Google um, Andrea Dworkin collection and you can find pretty much all of her work online. And um, she's just an absolutely brilliant thinker. So I'm, yeah. I'm very glad that there was somebody at least uh, reflecting on her importance in the book. Um, and the other other um, couple of essays in this uh, in this part is two pieces by Samantha Berg, which really I mean they're they're a concise overview of how prostitution harms women, um, and and are you know very straightforward, very readable, and has a lot of information. Um, I, did did Sam write those um, write those essays specifically for the book? She did a great job. He didn't. So, so there are a lot of different things in the book. There are things that were written specifically for the book. Um, some of which, just as an aside, I want to say some of these pieces were written by women who had never published any writing before, um, like Agnes Wade's incredible huge piece on ecocide and femicide. She had never published writing before, um, and she came up with this enormous, incredible chapter. Um, so some things were brand new for the book. Some things were reprinted and they all say at the beginning whether they were reprinted from somewhere else. Um, so some of them were reprinted articles that had been printed in, um, you know, academic journals. This, these two by Samantha Berg, the Genderberg Prostitution FAQ, and then her piece that follows that um, on page 396, which is called Prostitution is Not Work, the Crib Sheet. I was very happy to get these in the book because they were things that Sam had written some years back um, on her own personal website. Oh. And so hopefully they'll be, you know, in the, in the internet sphere forever, but I really wanted to get them into a book, you know, into printed mm -hmm. pages. Um, and they are pieces that have been, you know, that are referred to a lot, that people use a lot. And I think they do a beautiful job of, I like the FAQ format, the um, frequently asked questions format, because I think that they do a great job of responding to the questions that we all get asked very often, these very disingenuous questions and this these misleading questions about, well, isn't prostitution a free choice? Don't you want women to have autonomy over their bodies? Isn't, um, you know, engaging in prostitution just a way of women having autonomy over their own bodies? Isn't it actually anti-feminist to tell women what they can do and not do with their bodies, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, and then, you know, shouldn't women be able to uh, make money through any means that they can? You know, all these sort of disingenuous questions that completely ignore uh, all of the feminist aspects of all of this. Um, and I think she gives really great answers to them. And so I think these two pieces are very, um, very great resources for people to use uh, when they, to refer to when they are having those questions thrown at them. They can really refer to these pieces and give excellent answers, um, you know, in a in a somewhat simplified way because these questions are very simplistic. And sometimes when you're having these discussions with people, you need to present information to them in a way that they are capable of understanding. 
there's there's discussion discussion in the chat about the Nordic model and does it institutionalize prostitution or not? Um, mm -hmm. I I know you know women in prostitution will say at least it changes the balance of power a little bit, but I've always felt like um, the Nordic model is sort of a a way station on the way to abolishing prostitution entirely. Um, it's better than you know complete decriminalization with no regulation at all and and what's happening in Germany, um, but as an effort to give women in prostitution like a smidgen this much of maybe cha changing the balance of power okay that's fine but it's it's a way station it's not it's not an end in itself um is that you know is that something that you um is that any you know the um disagreements about the nordic model is that something that you found um when you were like like reading um doing any background reading for any of these essays um, I have to say that I, I find criticisms of the Nordic model mostly come out of not understanding the Nordic model. Um, I think the Nordic model is very important, um, and I would um, very much recommend a website called Nordic Model Now that I think, um, in a way, it's a little bit similar to um, Sam Berg's Genderberg Prostitution FAQ, except it's written in a a more sort of scholarly way, but it um, explains, it's sort of, it, one thing it does is it takes on um, some of these questions about, well, isn't, you know, aren't things this way and that way? And it answers them in a very cogent way. And the purpose of what the Nordic model does is it criminalizes the buyers. It criminalizes right. pimps and buyers. And it says women, the people who are prostituted should not be criminalized. Now that doesn't in any way mean that people who support the Nordic model think it's good for anyone to be in prostitution right. or that they don't want to work towards a world where no one has to be in prostitution. They absolutely do want to work towards a world where no one wants to can be in needs to be in prostitution, but I think the Nordic model is very practical because it's a solution yeah. for today. Right. The solution for today, it would be a huge part of the solution for today, immediately, if men were criminalized for pimping and buying sex from women, I wouldn't even call it sex, but buying prostitution from women, but women weren't criminalized because that has a lot of practical, immediate practical outcomes where the men would be punished and the women wouldn't be punished. Okay. Um so, but yes, you're right. It's a way station. Of course, people who are for the Nordic model want to work towards a world where women don't have to do this at all. And that's part of the Nordic model is creating um, sort of a social welfare structure where women are helped to exit prostitution and to get jobs that don't involve um, being harmed in that way. Um, next slide, Joe. I don't know. We're far behind. In terms of the slides, uh, where to purchase? Oh, okay. Um, so, um, but there's there's stuff before this. Um, yeah. Part four is um, lesbian radical feminism. Um, I I know that um, that may or may not be um, a you know a, um, a personal interest to um, to every woman, but it's really really important. Um, from bars to parades to Mitchfest and beyond, lesbian feminist organizing and women only spaces. Um, it's historical. You know, that, that's historical and kind of forward looking at the same time. Um, but, you know, the the fact that um, that part of it was women only spaces and the fact that 
you know, lesbian feminists were involved in so much of the early second wave and so much of the early women's movement um, in terms of uh, organizing and in terms of things that were of benefit for all women. Um, so why, why is that why, or, or are there other reasons why it was important to have this essay in the book? Yes, that's exactly why. Um, and actually, I would suggest, Joe, if you could, if you could go back to a slide called Where Did I Learn? What Did I Learn from the Pieces in the Book? Um, because it raises um, some of these themes that are threaded throughout. Um, and then also the next slide, in a few minutes, you could go to that one called Themes I See Threaded Throughout the Book. Um, I think that um, lesbian feminism is not only important for lesbians, but just as you said, Marian, it's important because um, what lesbians experience is um, sort of emblematic of what all women experience. Um, things like um, being seen as objects, being seen in relation to men, um, compulsory heterosexuality, these are all things that, because of who lesbians are, they tend to be, have an outsider perspective, even though they're also subject to these things, they also have an outsider perspective because they don't have an interest in men. And so lesbians have been extremely central in feminist movements in making these critiques. Um, and so I think lesbian feminism is is kind of a very central aspect of feminism. And in some ways, in some ways, I guess I would almost say all feminism expands out from the insights of lesbian feminism. Um, and so I think that the, those essays are um, very important for everyone to read. I think everybody can get a lot out of them, whether they're lesbians or not. Yeah. Um looking where we are with time, we have a little bit to go. Um, if anyone has any uh, questions, please put them in the Q&A. And if we have time at the end, we'll we'll get to those. Um, the part five is women's sexuality is a radical feminist issue. Um, you know, there, the, the essay, Understanding Heterosexuality, Eroticizing Subordination. Thank you, Kate Millett, who, uh, who figured that out. Um, and Colonization, a Lesbian Feminist Perspective. And this essay um, discusses some issues of the eroticization of subordination um, that that many heterosexual women would may find difficult or painful to talk about personally. Um, have you received any feedback from straight women about this essay? Did you expect to? Um, I haven't received any feedback from straight women, particularly about this essay. I would be very interested in hearing their feedback, but um, as you said, I think it brings up some issues that are very difficult for probably all women to grapple with. Um, I think it's an it's a brilliant essay. Um, it was written um, by Andrea Wilde specifically for this book. And I think that um, it has some really found like very central and foundational insights um, about compulsory heterosexuality, about the eroticization of subordination, about how all women, all girls and women are basically groomed by patriarchy from a very early age to have their sexuality shaped around ideas of domination and subordination. Um, so this actually very much um, relates to what we were just talking about with lesbian feminism 
in that these are insights that relate that that are relevant to all women because all women are subjected to this process of being othered um, of having our sexuality taken away from us as a personal thing and made into a thing that is done to us um, the male gaze is part of that um, the the othering of women the treating of women as objects and men uh, sorry yeah women as objects and men as the subject that acts on the object um, and then um, domination by men over women and subordination coming out of that and then women being taught to eroticize that experience of being subordinated and that our sexuality is supposed to consist of eroticizing that subordination so you know, even in fairy, in early fairy, in Snow White, um, where she's asleep and the man comes and wakes her up with a non-consensual kiss. That's eroticizing subordination. That's something we see that movie when we're three years old. Um, and so it starts when we're toddlers and continues from there. And I think that's, um, women are trained into that. Now, some of us um, reject it more than others. Some of us may feel that our sexuality practice as adults is not centered around that. And that may be true. Maybe some of us have broken free of, of it, but we are all trained into it. And I think it's extremely important for women to understand that. And it's not a reflection or criticism of women. It's a criticism of patriarchy. Yeah, I hated Snow White. I, think I saw it when I was six years old and, I, and it made me very uncomfortable. And at six years old, obviously I didn't know why it made me very uncomfortable. Because you had a feminist analysis, even at six years old. I mean, I think a lot, I think our discomfort is often a feminist analysis. We just are prevented from having the words to express it a lot of the time. Um, there's a comment in the chat, you know, um, saying sexual desire in relationships with women and lesbian. What does that do to women's psyches? Lesbians experience this patriarchal conditioning, too. And I think that's um, part of what this um, part of what this essay um, talked about is is that we're all subject to compulsory heterosexuality. Um, witness the phenomenon of of women coming out as lesbians, you know, far later in life, or even if they don't, saying, "Gosh, I you know, I wish, I, I wish I could, or I wish I you know, I, I wish I felt this way, or or life would be so much better." Um, if I was, uh, you know, if I wasn't attracted to men, um, there's also, um, uh, that's my cats in the background. Um, there's also uh, an essay, my sex positive memoirs, how I learned to stop drinking Kool-Aid and, and start judging. I thought this was very funny and, and perceptive and very, very, very personal. Um, was there anything in this essay that, you know, either surprised you or that you hadn't heard of before? I mean, those are. Um, nothing surprised me because I was familiar with what she was talking about. This is by Nina Paley, who is very funny um, and very smart, among other things. Yeah. Uh, so nothing surprised me, but I do think this essay is a great example of so many themes in the book. Um, sort of her coming to recognition of well so so her kind of journeying through for many years this sort of sex positive culture 
which like so many words that relate to feminism means the opposite of what it sounds like it means. You know, in reality, sex positive culture is not very positive for women's sex lives. <laughs> um, and it's more about men having access to women, men being able to make any demands they want and having them met by women. And then, which which often involves the subordinate domination and subordination, subordination and eroticization of subordination and women um, being trained and training themselves to see subordination as sexy. Um, and so kind of her journey through being in that world and then kind of getting to a place where she didn't find it sexy anymore and realized that it was um, kind of more all about these unhealthy, um, unequal relationships um, and domination and subordination relationships and sort of her journey through being kind of trained by society to think about what is sexy in um, a way that didn't serve her and that and her eventual realization that didn't serve her wasn't really for her um, or about her. So I, I think it's um, I think it's a really great essay about that. Like what is women's sexuality actually versus what society says women's sexuality is slash should be. It's not, it's again, it's like women being acted on as objects rather than being the subjects of our own autonomous lives. Yeah, I can understand that. There's a little conversation in the in the chat about um some women saying, you know, I didn't I didn't identify with Snow White, you know, or the, the female and um or I did identify with the prince. And and again, I remember being uncomfortable, but I didn't identify. Um, certainly didn't identify with Snow White, didn't identify with the prince either. Um, I wanted both of them just erased from what was a nice forest that I wanted to wander to. And I think that that was like a sort of a, well, sort of a six-year-old version of keep your eyes off the guys, not just the guys, but any relationship um, between um, between Snow White and the prince, um, because they were all going to be, um, they were all going to be like that. Um, there's a... There's a, a couple of um, parts um, at the end that um, we really don't have time to. One is online issues, and and the other is um, sort of involves a lot of the stuff, the, tra the, the trans stuff. Um, uh, you know, the and some of the issues there come come up and overlap with essays in the other parts. But is there anything in those two parts, um, in the essays or issues in those two parts that you think um, that you think are particularly relevant or that were really important for you to get in to get into those um, parts. So in the the online issues part, um, I do think that it's I think that would be a great section for women to read or I think you could even have a whole course around um, online issues because uh, and in particular chapter 29 um, creative control women as intellectual property by Genevieve Gluck. This was another piece that was written specifically for the book. Um, she's a brilliant femina, feminist um, commentator and analyzer. And I think that this is a great piece um, because it brings to our attention how all of the problems in patriarchy for women that have existed for, you know, millennia are 
changed and intensified and there are additional problems added on top of them from being online um, and all the ways that women are used as property and intellectual property online. Um, so, you know, things like deep fakes and revenge porn um, as one example. And also, uh, I don't remember whether this part was in her essay in particular, but um, the way that women are silenced online, the way that feminist discourse is erased in the in the online sphere. Um, we, we all, I think, have the experience of having, uh, being thrown out of groups, having our um, comments removed, being prevented from speaking. So it's interesting that the internet is seen as this huge democratizing forum where everybody gets to have much more speech, but that's none of that speech is allowed to be feminist speech. Um, and so it's, yeah both silencing, but it's actually negative even on top of that because people go online and they see all this discourse, but almost none of it is feminist because we're shut up and thrown out. And so it gives people the impression, it sort of um, reinforces the bad patriarchal ideas that are already in the ether um, and gives people the impression that there are no countervailing ideas like feminism. Wow. <laughs> um, well said. Um, we're we're um, in the last uh, just the last uh, few minutes. Is there anything else or anything um, any final comments that you would like to um, you know like to um, get across to women when they're when they're reading the book or you know aside from just connecting the dots from like one one essay to the other? Is there anything else that um, that you think uh, women should should kind of take home when they read the book? I think one thing I'd like women to take home is the project of doing the book itself. As I said, it was a cooperative venture. It was a grassroots ground, ground up rather than top down venture. Um, and I think that that is a feminist project. I think that has the characteristics of a feminist project and how feminists can change the world by acting in the world. You know, I went outside the patriarchal structure to create and publish the book. Um, I self-published it. Um, I gave a forum to women and I didn't tell them what they should say. Um, so, you know, it had, I think the project itself has hallmarks of feminist projects that I like to see happening in the world. And I hope it inspires other women to do feminist projects that can make a difference in the world. Um, and also I think a book like this could be put out every year. I mean, I published this in 2021, but I think you know easily another book and another book could come out every year that gathers the brilliant things that women said that year. And that I hope that the pieces in the book give women a lot of food for thought, but not just food for thought. I hope that they inspire women to take action in the world. I mean, that was part of the project of the book was not just to be something to read, but something to help women formulate their thoughts and help women formulate their desires about what they want to do in the world um, in terms of feminist work. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, you know, I was uh, um, kind of talking about a book like this can be, can be very, very difficult. It's, you know, it's like, 
an essay and then there's another essay um but you um you were able to tie it together so well and so thank you very much thank you so much for having me i i hope i get future opportunities to talk to as many women as possible about their reactions to various things in the book and i hope that women will um share it with each other and you know meet meet to talk about it um you know i hope it's the jumping off point for women to talk and you know and there's the uh link for the breakout rooms in case any in case anybody wants to do that um so thank you and um thanks for advancing the slides joe we're we're about done um could i say one more thing of course um, if anybody wants to contact me, maybe I can throw my email address in the chat or give it to you guys to share somehow. Should I throw it in the chat? Um, Joe, what is you? I mean, you want to have um, a yeah, put just... it put it in the chat. That's great. Okay. okay, I will do that. Yes, I welcome anybody to contact me. Why does the chat? Okay, here we go. Yes, I am typing my. Make email. sure you're it's set to everyone. Oh, thank you. Excellent point. It was not set to everyone. Okay. I welcome anyone to contact me about the book or anything. Yeah. Does that does that come up? Miller Elizabeth273 at gmail.com. Okay.